Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, I'm talking to Joanne Ramos about her debut novel, The Farm. Joanne Ramos was born in the Philippines and moved to Wisconsin when she was six. She graduated with a BA from Princeton University. After working in investment banking and private equity investing for several years, she became a staff writer at The Economist, and she currently serves on the board of The Moth. And today we're going to be talking about Joanne's debut novel, The Farm. Joanne, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you so much. How would you describe the novel for us? So, I think the easiest way to describe the book is to talk about the world of the book. So if you imagine that you're in the most luxurious spa you've ever seen, uh, it's got everything. It's got gourmet chefs and daily massages and private yoga structure, and it's all for free. In fact, for the women staying at this luxury spa, uh, they get paid big money. And the only catch is that for the nine months that they're committed to being there, their every move is monitored, they can't leave the grounds, and they're cut off from their former lives because they are surrogates carrying the richest babies in the world. And they have agreed by contract to prioritize the life that's growing inside of them over all else. And this is a farm. And ostensibly, it seems on paper to be a really good deal. You know, it's funny that you say that because that is one of the, I guess it's one of the the ideas that I really wanted to interrogate in the book. Um, you could argue, and if you're May Yu, who's the woman who runs the farm, she would argue that it's a win-win. Uh, these clients are billionaires, and, and they're desperate for, for, for children, and they get that. And most of the women who work at the farm as hosts, which is what I call the surrogates, they're desperate. They're needy. They, they don't have very many good options. Many of them are uneducated. And they can earn the kind of big money that can change their lives for good. And so in some ways you could see it if you agreed with Mayu and if you agree that the system is helpful to both people. You, you could see it as, as healthy and beneficial for both. But there are many, many other readers um, with whom I've spoken who feel that it is an abusive system because although both parties agreed voluntarily to this trade, 
um, one party, and that would be the women who tend to work there, the needy women, uh, don't have a lot of choices, uh, and they are in many cases uh, desperate uh, to change their lives. And then the question becomes, how free is that free trade? Yeah, I mean, they don't have, most of them are not in the position where they have any bargaining power, apart from some, which... You know, perhaps that will come up in the interview that that's sort of explored in the story. Um, so exactly. in general terms, in general terms, and we'll obviously talk about some of the actual characters, but in general terms then, who are the people that are the hosts? So in general, the hosts are women who are immigrants who are desperate for a way to change their lives and often hard scrabble lives. Uh, my, the main character in my book is a young Filipina named Jane. She's a single mother. She wants to give her baby daughter, Amalia, a better life, but she's uneducated. She just got fired from a baby nursing job, and so she has very few options. And when she hears about the farm, it seems like her golden ticket. It seems like not that hard a job in the sense that she's already carried a baby, so knows what that's like. Um, so not that hard a job that can end up helping her change the trajectory of her and her daughter's life. What was the inspiration for you to explore this surrogacy area? Well, the the very short answer is that about a year and a half into writing daily, trying to find a way into a story, uh, I read a small article in the Wall Street Journal. And from what I recall, it was two or three paragraphs. And it was about a surrogacy facility in India. And that just got stuck in my head as a way to talk about the ideas that had been sort of brewing in my mind most of my adult life. But the story really begins with all of those ideas. Um, I think I'm someone who has straddled a lot of worlds in my life. I think that's probably the defining characteristic of growing up for me. Uh, I was born in the Philippines, and we moved to Wisconsin when I was six in the late 1970s at a time when um, the Midwest, certainly in the wake of all the auto manufacturing closings in the area around then, was not the most diverse place. Um, I was a financial aid kid at Princeton University. You know, it was the first place that I really encountered class and great wealth, generational wealth for the first time. The first time I really questioned um, how I was brought up. I was really brought up by my immigrant parents to believe that if you, in America, you would make it if you were savvy and you worked hard and you played by the rules. Um, and Princeton was the first place that I encountered kids who never had to play by the rules, right? Like they were, they were at Princeton uh, for something other than the, the idea of merit that I grew up with. And then after college, because of all my college debt and also just to make it, learn how to make it in the world, I guess, I, I went into finance, I went to Wall Street and then private equity. And especially in private equity, where I was the first woman that had that this leveraged buyout shop had ever hired uh, on the investment side, um, you know, it was quite mind-opening to, to, to see what it really meant to be uh, a woman navigating a very male, very transactional world. And then flash forward to my 30s, I'm raising my children in, in New York City. Um, I worked full-time, part-time, and then I stayed at home with my third child. And it occurred to me, uh, well, actually a couple things occurred to me. Uh, the first is that my generation's zeal to be perfect parents and to give our kids every edge and every benefit could go really ridiculous places if you have um, you know, money and, and access. And the other thing that I noted one day at the park was that the only Filipinas I knew in my orbit um, at that point in Manhattan were nannies and housekeepers uh, and baby nurses. And, and given that, although I grew up in a small town without many Asians in Wisconsin, my dad's family had lived 30 minutes away. And so every Sunday after church, we would spend with his family. And so I did grow up, at least on the weekend, surrounded by a big, clamorous Filipino family. So to flash forward three or four decades and only know domestic workers who were Filipinas was really really reinforced all those questions I had about what it meant 
to deserve what I had, what meritocracy means in America, um, given that it's a justification for so much of the inequality that we have in, in our country. I guess that answer leads me on to what I want to talk about next, which is who are the, who are the customers of Golden Oaks? So they are international. They're not just from. They're not just Americans, but they're the wealthy. They're the one percent of the one percent uh, who have the access and the privilege to hire a young woman surrogate at Golden Oaks, and they have the access and the privilege to make sure that their babies in utero get an edge, because they have all kinds of systems. Not just the best doctors in the world, but uh, multivitamins that are custom made, and the system called Utero Sounds, where they can that I made up, but they can pump in Mozart, which has been shown, classical music's been shown to give your baby an edge in utero, and Shakespeare's speeches and Chinese lessons all pumped into the womb so that your baby can really try to, not your baby, but you can try to give your baby every advantage starting from conception. Um, I want to talk about the the parent company of Golden Oaks. It's called Holloway. Um, This is just a subsidiary of theirs, and they perform lots of other functions for the super rich, sort of discrete functions, sort of concierge functions and things. Now, for anybody in the UK reading this book, this may be a reference that's lost on American readers. Um, and if it's a coincidence, it's it's a, a serendipitous one. But Holloway, to me, is most famously a, a notorious women's prison. Is it? <laughs> did you not know that? That's brilliant. No, yes. I did not. And that has not come up yet. Oh my gosh, I did not know that. That's very strange. Yeah, so Hol- Holloway is a region of London, but also, yeah, located there is 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 a notorious prison for women. Yeah, so oh, I thought that was God, a really, it was really relevant, it. yeah. Yes, <laughs> isn't that strange? I actually have the shivers a little bit now. I have done a number of, I was just in the UK, or in London rather, um, for a week, two weeks ago, and I, I did a lot of media, and that didn't come up. And that's I definitely really didn't know that. Yeah, that's funny. Um, so we're going to talk about some of the characters in a while, yeah. but the book is told from the perspective of multiple characters. Um, and I wanted to talk about why you wanted to take that approach. Well, it's funny. It became an organic decision, but looking back on it, I, I, I think I'm not sure I could have done it any other way, given what I hoped for the book. And so the book really did start. The, the kernel um, of a story, even before I came up with the idea of the surrogacy facility, was the young Filipina baby nurse who leaves a newborn baby at home to take care of someone else's newborn baby. Because I know many women who work this profession, and um, I've always been taken is the wrong word, but, but I've always tried to imagine myself into their shoes, what it must feel like to see what these other children get, meaning the children of the privileged, every day uh, when you have a child at home, and sometimes home means back in the Philippines, um, that you're supporting and you see the gulf between the opportunities of the child you're caring for day to day and, and your own child. That just captured me from the get-go. But I do think because I've grown up on both sides of so many different divides, you know, I really do have a hard time demonizing people. My, my, the country that I call my own, America, has become so polarized, and I do understand different sides of it. For instance, whether or not you like President Trump. I live in New York City. It's very liberal. I have people in my family back home in Wisconsin and elsewhere who do not agree with me at all and voted very differently than I did in the last election. When I'm in New York and I hear people, my friends, tell me, oh, my gosh, everyone who voted for Trump is such an idiot and evil and all these things. Look, did I agree with their vote? No. But I know those people, and I, I know 
the challenges they have. And it would be, and I don't think that they are stupid and evil. I think it was a very complicated set of reasons that led them to make a choice that I, I would never have made, right? And so one of the impetuses for me in writing this book was to make each character whole, and complicated so that even if you didn't gravitate towards one of them, you would at least have some understanding of why she might make the decisions that she did. And and in doing that, hopefully make us question how easily and almost reflexively now I feel we dump people into buckets and, and write them off. And we don't even try to see really who they are. And I'm not sure how we move forward as a country or a society when we can't even begin a conversation with people because we've written them off. It seems like you're explicitly talking about May Yu there, who is in the book one of the characters who's who's the most yeah. visible representative of the corporation. Yeah. Um she's, you know, the the, the director of, of Golden Oaks, the facility. And, you know, she is sort of you know, doing well, but on the outside looking in at the super rich and obviously, you know, wants in, wants some of the trappings of that lifestyle and really will do anything to get it. Um, but of course, she's also, you know, ultimately she's an immigrant. She's from an immigrant background. Yes. Um, but she has she she has an unsentimental view of other people in that community. You know, she's not afraid to step on people to get where she wants to use the women's bodies of, you know, of other immigrant women to to get what she wants is she that's right and what i don't want to give anything away but there are other women in the book who are not as successful as she may be who are also willing to make some decisions about other people that will get to get ahead and and it's interesting to me that may you has become if you had to pick someone who is seen as a villain or that a lot of readers that i've talked to react to and really don't you know dislike her it's may you but there are other women in the book who betray um, and who make some tough decisions um, who don't get that sort of uh, reaction. And I find that really interesting. Well, May Wu, she's, I mean, I think, I think you've written her sympathetically. You know, it's, it's, it's really a mix. I, I tried, I really did try to do that. And part of it was because I do have a lot of, depending on who I'm, which type of friend I'm with, but I definitely have a certain, a certain set of friends who, if I bring up anyone who's been in finance, and again, I used to be in finance, their immediate reaction is they're horrible or, they're evil or, you know, capitalist pigs. And I, and I was trying to make her someone who you might be able to understand why she would want what she wanted. And, you know, someone said to me, uh, someone who'd read the book, and I thought this was a really interesting comment, that maybe May You attracts the most disdain or ire of readers is because she's the most relatable in the sense that she tells herself a story to make what she does and her acceptance of this very unjust system, okay. And her story is, well, Golden Oaks is a win-win. The farm is a win-win. Um, and what this reader said to me is, but we all tell ourselves a milder version of that story, and most of us don't sell out people the way she does day in, day out, but we tell ourselves some version of a story so that we can go outside in New York City and walk by seven homeless people on the way to the subway and, and then go shopping and buy a nice outfit and go home to a restaurant with our friends. We tell ourselves some story that makes that okay. So I don't know if that's why people dislike me more than others, but I thought that was a really interesting comment from from one of my readers. Well, I also think if Leon, who is the CEO of Holloway, had been a bigger character in the book, and if he'd been a more obvious, you know, antagonist in the story, yeah. Yeah. Um, rather than May Yu, I think 
we'd have been just well yeah that's 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 part of the course you know what i mean he's a you know a powerful rich white man that's what they do i think the fact that she's a woman but also from an immigrant background i think also makes her sympathetic because she's caught in that double bind you know what i mean she wants to get on but at the same time we're almost feeling like you shouldn't be doing this right right no i think you're right I think you're right. You know, it's funny. Someone asked me an interview, my first interview I actually did for the book months ago, why it is or what statement I was trying to make that the person ultimately holding the power of the book is Leon, who is a white man. And the strange and maybe sad part is that I didn't make that as a conscious decision. When I wrote Mayu's Boss, I just reflexively wrote a white man. And maybe that says more about the system or, or how I've worked in finance, my, my, rather my experiences in finance, that it was reflexive rather than conscious than anything. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's a Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Joanne Ramos and we're talking about her book, The Farm. And Joanne, I want to move us on to one of the other characters. And again, just thinking about how you referred to her a moment ago, we don't want to give too much away. But um, Evelyn, or Ate, who is the um, a Filipino baby nurse and also something of a fixer in the in the Filipino community, and like everybody knows her and is in some ways the counterpart to to Mei Yu, but just nowhere near as successful. Yes, 
I think that would be fair to say. In fact, she has a line in the book because she's a hustler. Ate, which means big sister in Tagalog, which is the language of the Philippines. She is someone always looking for a way to make a buck and quite, really does have a head for business. And she has a line at the end of one of her chapters where she says, what a shame that I wasn't born in this country because if I were, I would have made it because in America all you need is money and money buys everything else. And I and I know no small number of immigrants who have that mentality, who are doers and hustlers and business dealers, and they just feel like they they would have had a better shot if they were born here. And so that's interesting to me, too, because is that true? Was it ever true? Is it still true? Is it less true today than it was? That all those sort of questions were ones that drove me to write this book. I wanted to talk about where she came from, because, you know, as you've mentioned, you know, you've, although growing up in Wisconsin, you've you've spent a lot of time, you know, surrounded by a Filipino community. And, you know, you must know people like Evelyn. I do, and especially for Evelyn in particular for my years in Manhattan because I know several baby nurses who are Filipinas who are, well, were, two of them I think have stopped working, but when I knew them, they were in their 70s, still staying up all night to get little newborns to sleep. All of them had family they were supporting back in Manila or elsewhere in the Philippines, and I was just really struck by their stories and the things that they would tell me. Um, and also their invisibility in a lot of ways. It's funny that helping someone raise your child is a very intimate act, and yet there's such inequality in it. Um, I heard someone called intimate inequality, and I think that's that's really the case. It's a really complicated relationship, I think, um, and I wanted to explore that. Um, this I don't know if this is just a, the the comment of a of a clueless man, but can you tell us what a baby nurse is? Because it's not a nanny, is it? It's a distinct role from a nanny. Yeah, so it's funny. I had never heard of baby nurses until I came to Manhattan. Basically, you hire a baby nurse when you've just had your child. So your your baby is a few days old, and she will come over, and she helps you take care of your child. She'll help you learn how to breastfeed. She will help you learn to get your baby on a schedule. She's the one who will stay up all night with the child rocking the baby to sleep once you've gone to bed. Um, if you've chosen to breastfeed, then you'll put the baby on your breast. But when you're done, you give the baby to the baby nurse. The baby is the one who will rock the baby to sleep. Um, it's basically having someone around to take some of the burden off the mother. And then if you're choosing to pump breast milk or feed your baby formula, then even more so, then you, you don't have to get up you know, at night. It's the baby nurse who will get up every two hours or one hour in the beginning for the feedings. During the the early chapters, where we're seeing the work of the both Arte and Jane doing the the, the job of the baby nurse, you have some fun with um, some of the clients that they work with. Some of the sort of poking fun at the super rich in in Manhattan. What sort of things would these baby nurses encounter? So I actually have a number of friends who are baby nurses, and you hear the range of them. I remember one baby nurse with whom I became friends really did receive great presence every time she was done with a job from her clients. And she felt very, she would get Christmas cards from, as I, I have a character in the book who gets this, like so every year she would get dozens of Christmas cards from all the babies that she helped um, in their first three or six months of, of their lives. And she was very proud about that, I have to say. And she And she considered them almost like, not her kids, I mean that's way too strong, but she would remember little quirks in the different babies, which ones slept early, which ones were colicky, and rattle them up almost with a sort of pride. She would also make 
kind of shocking statements about different families and especially their ethnicities, like what types of people by ethnicity or country are the best ones to work for and which ones you would. So I was, I was very surprised that she felt comfortable saying that to me. But one of the things she would say is, you want to work for the Americans. They'll pay you more. They'll feel worse if you're up a few nights in a row. So some of the stuff that I put in there, some of the comments that the, the Filipinas and the community would say were definitely pulled from comments I've heard from my friends who are domestic workers. And I just wanted to say one other thing about Evelyn is that the situation that she is in, she's been in America for decades yes. um, and has left her, you know, she has four children who are all left behind in the Philippines where she's obviously sending money home to, you know, over the years to support them. She's gradually buying land in the Philippines to one day go back. Um, but again, has been has been in the US working for decades. Um, is this a, you know, is this a, a, a regular thing? It is very common, and not just people coming to the States, but when I've talked to my friends in Hong Kong, there's a huge Filipina community there, and they live in dormitories, just like the dormitory that I talked about in Queens in the book. I was just on BBC Three, I think I was free thinking when I was in the UK, and they actually had an expert there, an expert in Philippine diasporas and all these communities of women who leave the Philippines and leave their children back home and support them from afar. So it really is... It is not uncommon at all. People find this construct that I came up with of the farm extreme because these women are leaving their lives behind to raise or carry other people's children. And yet it does already happen, right? There's countless examples of women and men who are sacrificing their own time with their families to take care of other families, and ultimately they're doing it for their family. And even if it's not as extreme as a Filipina nanny leaving her baby's home in the Philippines to do it, in America, if you're making minimum wage, you have at least two jobs to support your kids. You don't see your kids either. So you, again, are sacrificing your family for the sake of your family. Um, And so it's something I've been trying to say when I speak about the book. Like, it's definitely extreme, but it's only an extension of what happens all around us all the time. Well, that's interesting because I, it doesn't seem extreme to me. It seems not only do these things happen, you know, in other countries around the world, as you've, as you've already explained, but it seems like it could be tomorrow in the US. And with books like this that are, you know, have a feel of a, a dystopia around them, we'll often talk about, you know, when is this book set? You know, is it set at some point mm. in the future? And, and, and the, the time here is deliberately ambiguous but I mean it, it could be today it it doesn't feel like it's set 20 years 30 years into the future it feels like it's today well I'm glad you said that because I that's what I intended and in fact when it's been called a dystopian novel by many people but that is not what I set out to do because it really the the issues that drove me to write this book weren't dystopian unless you consider our current lives dystopian, right? I, what was driving me was that these ideas of motherhood and the sacrifice of motherhood and, and extreme inequality and and what we're willing to sell to support our families, what we're comfortable allowing people to have to sell to support their families. It, that is all happening now. So I'm actually very happy to hear you say that. Not everyone has that reaction to the book, and they do. Um, I've seen it sometimes placed in bookstores and sci-fi, and I thought, oh, that's not what I intended. I didn't, I didn't want to give readers the out of sci-fi. I wanted it to feel like it was today and have people question, if the book makes you uncomfortable, if Golden Oaks makes you uncomfortable, I wonder once you put it down, if you look around and what you see makes you uncomfortable. 
because it it's meant to be today and if not today a few inches away the next character i wanted to talk about jane i didn't really want to go into in too much depth she's the probably most sympathetic character therefore the most close out of the four to a protagonist that we have and and what happens to her drives the plot so i said i don't want to give too much away and you've already mentioned at the beginning why she's why she's gone to the farm but i did want to talk about something else you've already raised which is the dormitories that they live in when we first meet jane and evelyn they're they're living in these dormitories and as you've said this is a real thing what are they like so i didn't visit one in queens it was more that i had at least half a dozen friends who had stayed in them before and they are basically buildings owned by a landlord uh, where he or she is stuffing the rooms with bunk beds and couches that workers can rent for half a day. And so if think about it, if you're a night nurse, if you're a baby nurse who only comes in to help the, the parents at night, you don't need a bed at night. And so you would only rent your sofa or your bunk uh, for half the day. And if someone works during the day but needs to sleep at night, then she would rent the bed for the other half the day. And again, you could say this is a win-win because these women pay a little bit less for their bunk and a landlord gets twice as much uh, for the bed. But to me, it's a, it's not the same as the farm, but there are some questions about that too, because the if you do the math, at least in the with the numbers that my friends had told me about some of these places, that landlord's doing a lot better renting, you know, stuffing these rooms with bunk beds and renting them out by the half day than he would if he rented them to families at a, at a good rate to families. And then the, the, the last of the quartet of main characters, Reagan, has gone to the farm for completely different reasons to all of the rest of the characters. Um, Tell us something about who she is. So Reagan is a young woman. She is educated. Uh, She's a privilege. Her dad was a businessman or a lawyer, and um, she's a white woman. And she's quite lost uh, and doesn't know what to do with herself. Her her father's very financially domineering. He tries to get her to do what he wants by withholding um, her, her monthly rent check. And when she hears about the farm, it seems to her a way to break free from her father and also help somebody. And for her, it's very important that she's helping someone. In fact, when during her interview with Mayu, who is the woman who runs the farm, she says as much. She says, you know, I don't really want to carry the baby for someone who's doing it for aesthetic reasons, for a rich lady who just doesn't want to carry her baby. I really want to carry a baby for someone who can't do it on her own because then I'd feel like I'm helping. And I really wanted the perspective of someone who is a beneficiary of the system, one, and two, someone of privilege to sort of interrogate what that means and allows you. Um, if you notice, the farm is really called Golden Oaks. And if you notice in the book, the people who call it the farm, which is quite a sarcastic name for it, are not the needy immigrant women. They, they are the premium hosts. We're like Reagan. They, the, the white hosts, the white educated hosts get paid more because clients are willing to pay more for these educated kind of fancier wombs. If those women who have the agency or the distance or the ability to be sarcastic about a place like Golden Oaks and call it the farm. And I wanted to play with those ideas, the idea that even the idea of agency or self-advocating or all these things that I teach to my children, to some degree, I can teach that to my kids because I'm a person of privilege now and my kids are. And so they can advocate for themselves in a way that someone with no power can't or would do at her own risk, honestly, or at risk of her job. And so I really wanted um, Reagan's perspective there. There's also, though, later on in the book, there's a conversation amongst the, you know, the executives of, of Holloway about 
in the future targeting the sort of lower middle classes who are now in America on their uppers and sort of disenfranchised. And while they could probably be hired for not as much money anymore, they could still command the premium for being white. Yeah, I wanted to bring in, that was, I don't know where, I, honestly, that was something that as I was writing, it kind of came out and I thought, oh, I, it, it allowed me to do two things. One was talk about the business angle, how corporations are always looking for a way to make a buck, even when it may seem or be unsavory. Like I thought that was kind of a gross conversation, honestly, but it just came out and felt like it might actually happen somewhere. And the second thing is that I did want to make some nod towards what's happening in America, or at least explanations have been posed for what happened in 2016 and the reason why so many of the white working class feel forgotten and left behind in America. Just one more question from me then, and then I'll I'll get you to, to read a bit of the book. The book is explicitly here about, you're talking about a system of surrogacy, of, of less well-off people, you know, giving up their bodily agency to, to sell to, to the, the 1%. Um, in a lot of ways also, though, that's a, just a metaphor for motherhood itself. Motherhood is a, a form of work, like any other, that's obviously somehow sort of prioritised within, like it's kept with the family in a patriarchal system that basically sort of elevates the idea of, of motherhood to something more noble. But of course, it's it's really work like any other, isn't it? It is. It's funny that you say that. No one's ever asked me about this angle of it before, but I was asked to write an essay that ended up being about the invisibility of motherhood and how we don't see the work, all the different types of labors involved in motherhood unless it's outsourced. And then all of a sudden you hire the coach or the driver or the cook or the surrogate or the, and then you see that it's work. But when it's someone doing it within the construct of the family, unpaid for love, it's somehow not valued, particularly in this society where I feel like value and price are conflated and they're different, but I think we forget that a lot. All right, can I finish this off? Can I get you to read us some? So I am going to read a part of the book that is in the second chapter. It's when Ate, who is the uh, Filipina baby nurse, uh, has collapsed on her job, her baby nurse job, because of a heart condition, and is uh, convincing her much younger niece, Jane, to take over for her. And she's giving her some advice, and, and this is her advice. Sundays are the day off, but for the first week, you should not take it. Mrs. Carter will insist, but you must refuse. Tell her you prefer to stay and get to know Henry. She will always remember this. She will tell Mr. Carter, and they will be pleased you are my replacement. You will miss Molly. I understand this. I will send you pictures of your baby, many videos, but you must only check them in your room. You see the babysitters from the islands on their phones at the playground not watching the children? Do not be like that. You do not get double rate for being like that. I will tell Dina you are coming. She will help you find what you need. Cabbage. The leaves are good for when the mother's milk dog gets plugged. Lactation tea. The mother should drink it several times a day. Multivitamins also every day. A beer called Guinness. This is good for milk production. But Jane, speak to Dina only in English. No Tagalog, even if the parents are in a different room. Otherwise, they are uneasy. They feel like strangers in their home. Oh, I do not mean to scare you, Jane. Mrs. Carter and Mr. Carter are very nice. It is only that you need to show respect. They will tell you to call them Kate and Ted, very American, very equal, but it is always sir and ma'am. They will tell you to make yourself at home, but they do not want you to make yourself at home because it is their home, not yours, and they are not your friends. They are your clients, only that. Mrs. Carter, she is the type of mother who feels guilty. She likes to be with her baby, but she thinks she likes to be with her baby more than she likes to be with him. 
Do you understand? And this makes her guilty because she believes love and time are the same. But that is not true. I have not seen Roy or Romuela or Isabel or Ellen in many years, but my love for my children is the same. Mrs. Carter does not understand this, so she is guilty. Guilty if she leaves the baby for half the day to do her haircut. Guilty when she learns her friend did the breastfeeding longer. Be careful of this guilt, Jane. Do not allow it. At times, Mrs. Carter will tell you, I will take Henry. Go nap. You were up all night. But most likely, she's only feeling guilty about you. You must give her an excuse to leave the baby. For example, you can say, it is time for the baby's bath, or it is tummy time. Or in a joking voice, you can say, can I please have a turn with Mr. Handsome now? If she insists she wants him, okay, okay, but then the baby must be full of milk and already burped and happy, not hungry or tired in a crying mood. If he fusses with her, she might get jealous. This can happen if the baby smiles at you more, if he is comforted by you faster. And you must stay nearby, one ear listening, but not just standing, always busy, washing bottles, folding clothes. Otherwise, the mother begins to resent you for only taking up space while she is the one with the baby. The father? Well, he is working at a bank. He works very hard, very long hours. Keep your distance, Jane. Be polite, but do not look him in the eyes, and do not smile at him. No, he is nothing like Billy. But Mrs. Carter, she is still fat from the baby, and you are young and pretty. So I've been talking to Joanne Ramos. We've been talking about her debut novel, The Farm, which is out in the UK from Bloomsbury. Joanne, thank you so much for sharing it with us. Thank you for having me. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.